And I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28 this morning. Matthew 28. Matthew chapter 28. Maybe if we could turn the volume up just a little on me, guys. That would be helpful. <clears throat> In Acts chapter 1, Luke says that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. What must it have, must it have been like? to be one of those people who saw bodily the risen Lord Jesus. What an encouragement that was. But that encouragement was not only for their hearts, it was for all of us, that we may be encouraged by their testimony as God's appointed messengers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul included the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus as part of the gospel. Right? He says the gospel is Christ died, that is for our sins as a substitutionary death. He was buried, He rose again, and He was seen. Now sometimes we summarize the gospel by saying that Christ was die, that He died, was buried, and rose again. Or we might even summarize it further by saying Christ died and rose again. But the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ play a huge role in the Christian witness. When you put the Gospels together and you try to harmonize them, it becomes apparent that there were at least 11 or 12 different occasions on which our Lord appeared to people in His resurrection body after he came out of the tomb. These are the ones that we know about. There could have been others that we don't, but we do know of at least 11 or 12. On the day in which Jesus rose, he appeared five times that day. First of all, very early in the morning, the Bible says that he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. This was on her second visit to the tomb. You remember that she had gone first, had seen an empty tomb, and had rushed back to tell Peter and John. Uh, but now she comes back to the tomb, and it is there that the Lord Jesus appears to her and calls her by name. And then, shortly around that time, he appears again to the other women who had come to meet at the tomb, who had seen uh, the, the angels and had run back uh, and he met them and encouraged them on their mission to tell the other disciples. Later on that day, Rome, uh, Luke chapter 24 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 revealed to us that he appeared to Peter alone. And what a sweet thing that must have been. We don't really have a record of that. Uh, but... You think about Peter, in fact, remember one of the Gospels records that the angels told, I believe it was the angels or the Lord, told the women to go tell the disciples and Peter. Because I'm sure by this time he felt that he had no right to even be considered one of the disciples anymore. 
You felt like that maybe at times in your life. And the Lord comes to him and with a gracious restoration that very day. Um, later on that afternoon, Jesus, in his resurrection form, appeared to Cleopas or Cleopas and another disciple on their journey over to Emmaus, which was not terribly far from Jerusalem. He appeared to them, remember, and he walked with them and he talked with them for a while. Um, then later on that evening, he appeared to all of the disciples, except Thomas, who happened to be absent that day. He appeared to all of the rest of the disciples in the upper room. So five times on his on the day in which he came out of the tomb. And then the scripture records that about a week later, they were meeting all of the disciples this time, including Thomas, and our Lord came again and appeared to them in that upper room. And uh, of course, you know the story uh, with Thomas, uh, and he saw and touched the Lord and knew that the Lord had risen as well. Then later on, we don't know how long after that, but perhaps another week or a couple of weeks after that, the Lord appeared to his disciples in Galilee, this time up in the north part of Israel. There he appeared, first of all, to seven of the disciples, including Peter, James, and John, along with some others. Seven of the disciples had been out on the sea fishing, and our Lord appeared to them. And then you have the appearance that is described in what will be our text this morning here in Matthew chapter 28. And we also know that at some point, we don't exactly know when or where, we have this description in 1 Corinthians of Paul uh, saying that Christ appeared at one point to a, up to 500 people at one time. And could well have been in that in that time as well. And then probably also in Galilee is where Jesus made his appearance to James, his, his brother, his half-brother. Um, and, and we're told about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as well. Then, back down in Jerusalem, where Jesus told the disciples to go and wait, we see that the Lord appeared to them one last time before his ascension, um, and this was on or near the Mount of Olives, near the city of Bethany, not too far from Jerusalem. And there, of course, they, they heard him, he blessed them, and he ascended up from their sight into the clouds, into heaven. Uh, there's only one more appearance, and this is an unusual one. It, it's like uh, an appearance to one that was... Uh, untimely born, as Paul writes, uh, like a baby who's born late, he also saw the bodily, visible, uh, resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus. And so, altogether, 11 or 12 times that our Lord appeared to different people after his resurrection. Now, Matthew records two of them. We saw already the first last week or a couple of weeks ago. He appeared to the women who had gone to the tomb early on that Lord's Day morning, that first day of the week, and there they, remember, were commissioned. They saw these angels, and they were commissioned by the angels to go and tell the disciples, and they were fearful, and on their way to the disciples, and still wondering and puzzling over how to move forward, our Lord appeared to them to encourage them himself, and 
he gave them, he reinforced to them the message that they were to give to the apostles. Do you remember what the message was? Go and tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. There they will see me. And of course, we took note that Galilee was, on the one hand, the place where those apostles were originally commissioned. And now they will be commissioned again um, with a mission even broader than what they had before. But, but even more perhaps significant than that is that, that Galilee was the outermost reaches of Israel. It was on the frontier of the nations. It was as Isaiah the prophet called it, Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations. It was the gateway to the world. And it was at that point where our Lord hinted at a greater, or or gave them a greater mission than they had ever known before. So, at some point after that last week that they spent in Jerusalem, at some point they made their way up to the Galilee in the north of Israel. And there the seven of them, as I mentioned earlier, Peter, James, and John, some others went fishing. You probably remember the story. They fished all night and they caught nothing. You ever been there out there fishing and uh, caught nothing? I feel like that's all I ever do when I go fishing. But they were out there and I'm sure they were discouraged and And then in the early morning, you know, they're tired, they're bone-weary, and in the early morning in that dim light, a man appears on the shore. The Bible says about a 100 yards off on the shore there, and they saw a figure, and the person called out to them, cast your net on the other side, on the right side of the boat. And, you know, every fisherman knows what it's like to have well-meaning passers-by come and offer them advice on their fishing technique. But they agreed. I mean, they didn't have much to lose, and they threw their net on the right side of the boat, and a boatload of fish, 153, it stuck in their minds all those years. 153 fish. It was just crazy. And immediately it recalled to them the circumstances of three years earlier where our Lord had done almost the exact miracle. And when He did it now, they knew. <laughs> they knew who this was. And Simon Peter was so overjoyed, he just he couldn't help himself. He jumped out of the boat and swam for the shore. And uh, it was just a wonderful, sweet time of fellowship. Our Lord ate uh, breakfast with them there on that beach. I just can't wait for the day when you and I can do things like that with our Lord in person, visibly. They ate with Him on that beach. And there they took a walk and He began to talk to them about all of the things that that they didn't understand and the things that they were about to face and preparing them, preparing Peter in particular, preparing all the disciples for the things that they would face ahead of them. And it is some point after that or perhaps at that moment, that they arranged to meet again. And this arrangement would take place at a particular mountain that uh, I'm sure that they all knew about. And that's the account that we read beginning in verse 16. Matthew 28, 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him 
they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is that wonderful passage of Scripture that we know so well as the Great Commission. And it is such a full passage. There's so much here that uh, what I'm going to do is to, to, to spread it out over two Lord's Days. So this morning, we will look at just part one of this and really deal with the what. And then next week, we'll look at part two and deal with the so what. This morning, we want to concentrate on verses 16 through 18. And nobody knows what mountain it was that they went to. People have speculated, probably because, you know, that's just what we do as humans. People have speculated, perhaps it was, and this would be very apt, it seems, but perhaps it was the very mountain where our Lord went to be transfigured before them. Um, traditionally, the uh, people have pointed to Mount Tabor, as that mountain. You can visit it still today in, in Israel, and they've, they built a church up on top as a commemoration of his transfiguration. Of course, we don't know that. It just happens to be a really big mountain that sticks out in, in a very flat plain, so it's really obvious. But in any case, could have been that mountain. We don't know. Or perhaps it was the mountain where our Lord stood and uh, or sat and taught the people um, on the, the Sermon on the Mount. In either case, it's not the mountain from which our Lord ascended into heaven. Sometimes people get that confused. That mountain is much further south. That's down near Jerusalem, somewhere around the Mount of Olives. But on this occasion, the disciples were to meet there on this mountain that they'd agreed upon to wait for the Lord Jesus to come to them, as the text says, apparently at some appointed time. And when he did come, the text says that when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. What they had confessed before his death, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, now they knew more than ever, and they fell down on their faces before this God-man before them, and they worshipped him, and And yet it says that still some doubted. Now, we know that many of the disciples found the women's testimony hard to believe, right? Frankly, you think about it, and we are so used to talking about our Lord's resurrection. and We've believed it for so long that in some cases, perhaps it's lost its... uh, it's, um, it's lost some of its amazement for us that such a thing should happen. But 
these disciples were not prepared for it at the beginning. In spite of what our Lord had taught them, and in spite of the prophecies of the Old Testament, they were just not ready. And when the women came, they didn't believe. Initially, they struggled to believe. Um, Mark chapter 16 tells us that Cleopas and his companion, who had walked with the Lord on the road, they came and told the apostles who were gathered there in the upper room about their meeting with the Lord on the road to Emmaus. And the apostles, quote, did not believe them. Luke chapter 24 tells us that as they were still speaking together, Jesus actually appeared to all of them and they thought they were seeing a spirit. And he had to tell them, um, he had to actually rebuke them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, the scripture says. In Mark chapter 16, for, for, for not believing these eyewitnesses that had seen and um, eaten with him. So Jesus told them at that point, why do doubts arise in your heart? He said, he gave them encouragement. He said, here, look, look, look at my hands. Touch me. See, I have, still have the prince. And they touched him. And more than that, he said, bring me some fish. And he ate fish with them. And all of this happened right in front of them. And the, the Bible says, actually, they still disbelieved for joy. And they were marveling, which I think is a whole different flavor of disbelief, right? This is not hardened skepticism. This is just amazement and being astounded and not quite knowing what to think of all of it. Well, John, of course, records that um, Thomas was missing from that original meeting in that upper room. And we know him as good old what? Doubting Thomas. Of course, the truth is they were all doubters. They all struggled with faith, not just Thomas. Um, they all tried to convince Thomas after that meeting that what they had seen was in fact true. And uh, you remember what he said, well, unless I touch his hands and his feet um, like you did, I, I, I won't believe it. You, you saw him, but I, I haven't seen him. Well, a week later, our Lord appeared again. And this time to Thomas said, Thomas, Look, my hands, my feet, touch me. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And of course, Thomas, in this beautiful act of worship, falls down before him and confesses, my Lord and my God. So, all of that to say this, by this time then, by the time we read the record in Matthew 28, 16 and following, the disciples are fully convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So whatever they're facing, these are not intellectual doubts about who he is or whether he's risen. They have seen him with their own eyes. They have handled him with their own hands. They have spent time with him. They have walked with him and talked with him and eaten with him. They are convinced. So what is going on here? I think there's one of four things, and I'm not sure which one it is. So I'm giving you all four. But I think any of these is, is a possibility when it says that some doubted, I think perhaps this is a summary statement about all of their doubts up to this point, the previous doubts that, that they've had. Now, I think the wording makes that explanation least likely, but we certainly do know that there are records of those doubts. Um, and the other Gospels, almost all of the Gospels, I think, record them. Secondly, it could be that they're in the position, just imagine yourself in this position now, right? They're on the mountain, they're waiting for Jesus to come, Apparently, he's not there yet, but there's a group of disciples. 
And finally, they see this figure coming from a long way off, and some of them are convinced this is their Lord for sure, and they fall down and they begin to worship Him immediately, but others are uncertain of whether it's really Him. Until, as verse 18 says very explicitly, that He came. He came to them and He spoke to them, and when He comes closer, um, they recognize Him and they too uh, believe The other gospel accounts show this same, or at least a similar kind of uncertainty sometimes in identifying the risen Jesus in his resurrection body. For example, you probably have noticed that when Mary Magdalene, who knew Jesus intimately, when she saw him in the garden um, early in the morning, uh, perhaps it was still a little bit dark and and he's farther away, and he see, she sees him coming, and she calls out to him, and, and she mistakes him for the gardener, right? Or the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they, they walked with him all that way. They spent a long time with him and did not recognize him. I think there might be something else going on there. The Bible says that they were kept from recognizing him in some way. But... I can't help but wonder if perhaps part of the explanation is that our Lord was appearing and will appear one day to us in His resurrection body, in a transformed body, one and the self-same body, and yet new and transformed, a glorified body, an immortal body. I mean, what kinds of physiological changes would have to take place for your body to become immortal. There's something that's new even while it is the same physical you. This body could apparently pass through a locked door into an upper room or perhaps even pass through grave clothes. Um, So you know, it, this could be part of the explanation. But once Jesus began to come closer, he came to them and he spoke to them. Then they knew and their doubts uh, fled away. That could be it. Or perhaps it is not a statement of real intellectual doubt at all, but of just momentary wavering and hesitation. This is still even though they believe that he's risen from the dead, it's still a hard thing to believe. I mean, it's like you've got to pinch yourself. You know, you've been like that, right? You know it's true. You're sure that you're not sleepwalking, and yet you, you kind of want to pinch yourself to, to just be sure because it's just so overwhelming and so amazing. And it could be that this, there was this kind of momentary doubt and hesitation in their minds, especially perhaps among those disciples who were not Uh, part of those seven who had already seen him on the shore um, at the Sea of Galilee. And I say that because this is a very unusual word for doubt, the word here. It's a word that could mean that they hesitated or they wavered between uh, between two uh, positions. They, 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 They weren't quite sure where they stood. There's only one other occurrence of this word in the New Testament, and it's in Matthew's Gospel, where, remember, that Peter was walking on the water, and he believed in the Lord, he believed it was the Lord, he trusted the Lord. I mean, of all the people in the boat, he got out. He trusted the Lord, 
And yet, while he was walking on the water, he began to look around at the winds and the waves and, you know, all of the elements, uh, his senses uh, of those things overtook his heart of faith and he began to sink, right? So this is not a questioning of who Jesus was in his mind so much as it is just this momentary kind of wavering and this, this doubt. And it could be that that is what is going on with these disciples. And I just want to remind you, friends, that the Lord is, has proven himself to be incredibly gracious to his followers, even in their moments of wavering and hesitation and doubts and fears. If you'll come to him with those fears and be honest with him and rely on his words, you'll find him to be very gracious and to manifest himself to you. Or perhaps, and maybe this might even be most likely as an explanation, that there were just more than the 11 disciples there on the mountain. That when it says that they fell down and worshipped, but some of them did not believe, or some of them doubted rather, that maybe this was others besides those 11. In fact, we know, as I mentioned earlier, that there were 500 people that saw him at one point, and a lot of Bible scholars believe this is that point. There's nothing in Matthew's verbiage that makes it explicit that it was only the 11 at this point. In fact, he, Jesus had many followers up in the Galilee, and I could not... Uh, uh, it's easy to imagine the disciples spreading the good news already to those who believed in the Lord and had followed him earlier, that he was here, he's going to meet us on this mountain at this time, and so there's this great gathering, and, 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 and many of them who had not yet seen or heard from the Lord uh, were, were skeptical at first and doubting, um, like Thomas was at the beginning. And yet, in the end, these people became so convinced uh, that this was the risen Lord that Paul could write years later, if you have any doubts, you people who I'm writing to right now, if you have any doubts, many of those 500 are still alive today. Just go and ask them what they saw. Ask them what they experienced. And they were able to bear testimony. Jesus comes to these people on the mountain and he gives them this magnificent message here. This great message that has three parts. The great claim that he makes, the great commission that he gives, and the great comfort wherewith he strengthens their hearts. In the time that's left this morning, I just want to focus on the first of those. The great claim that Jesus makes. Verse 18, it could hardly be a greater claim. Out of all of the claims, of all of the different humans that have lived on the face of this earth, consider this claim. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. <laughs> what a claim. And I want to take just the rest of this time and just meditate on that and think about how that claim is, un, is 
grounded in the scripture and unfolded throughout the scriptures. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This from the mouth of the resurrected, glorified Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah and our Lord. This is the fulfillment of what Daniel's vision had given to us. Daniel chapter 7, I read it earlier. Let's think about it again. Here's the crux of it. Daniel said, I saw in the night visions and behold, uh, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And you remember that that is Jesus' most commonly used title for himself, right? This vision, Daniel sees one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, the timeless one, the God of all eternity. He came to the ancient of days, and he was presented to him like a prince being presented at court for his enthronement. And to him, Daniel says in this vision, to the Son of Man was given, what? Dominion and glory and a kingdom such that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the Son of Man coming into His own, being enthroned above all of God's creation. Now that dominion, that rule, that authority by a perfect man over all of God's creation, do you realize that that was God's eternal plan? For a perfect man, to have authority and dominion over all that God has made. You know, you think of all that God has made in the heavens and all that God has made in the earth. God's plan was for a man to rule over it. And you see that in Psalm 8. And I'm going to have you, we're just going to look at a series of passages here. So if you want to flip to them, that would be the best. They'll be on the screen as well. But in Psalm 8, here's what we see beginning in verse number 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, You have established strength because of Your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Does that sound familiar? Our Lord quoted that when he, in, with reference to Himself when He was making his way into Jerusalem as the king in fulfillment of so much Old Testament Scripture. He's alluding to this very psalm. Look at verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the psalmist says, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars. So he's looking up into the heavens. All of these things which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? There's our term again, isn't it? 
the Son of Man, that you care for Him. Yet you have made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings or the angels. And you crowned Him with honor or glory and honor. You have given Him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under His feet. Now I want you to think about this in relation to the first man. That is Adam, right? God gave Adam... Well, let's back up. God made Adam, God made man in His own image. What does that mean? Well, among other things, it means this. God said to them, let them have dominion. Dominion over all that I have made. Adam, Eve, humankind were to be kings under God. Adam was to be God's co-regent, as it were, underneath him, ruling, naming, taking dominion over all that God had made. He was to guard the garden. Remember that? He set him over the garden to guard it and to, uh, or to cultivate it and to guard it or to keep it. He was to guard the garden from evil. What evil? From that twisted heavenly serpent, the devil. But in the end, Adam and all humanity with him failed miserably. All sons of Adam follow in his train. Mankind has perverted our dominion over creation by our sinful desires. Mankind has yielded to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. This is the story of the first man. And so you read Psalm 8 and you are hoping and waiting for a new man God's eternal plan would not be thwarted. He Himself will fulfill it as a man and for men. And the Son of God became the Son of Man. And that Son of Man lived a perfect and sinless life, exercising God's kingship over all creation in perfect submission to His Father in heaven in every respect. And that son of man, that son of Adam, withstood the tempter. He overcame him and he crushed the serpent's head in precisely the opposite way from the way Adam yielded to the serpent. And so the eternal decree was fulfilled in Christ, the perfect son. And the Messiah's authority over all of heaven and earth is his right as the perfect man, the perfect Son of Man. And you see this in Psalm 2. Turn to Psalm 2, just back a few pages. All of this thick tapestry of prophecy woven together to prepare the way for us to see Him in all of His glory. Psalm 2. Here is the eternal decree I've been talking about. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord, that is Yahweh Jehovah, said to me, You 
are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I, here, notice here, verse 8, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them or rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces as a potter's vessel if they resist your rule. So, verse 10, now he addresses the nations of the world. O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Pay homage to Him. Submit to the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. But, it ends this way, but blessed, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Here is the Son the perfect, obedient Son raised up to a position of glory and His right and reward is the peoples of all of the earth to be under His dominion, for Him to give life to whomever He will, whomever the Father gives to Him. Similar statements are made in Psalm 110. If you flip just forward a little bit, Psalm 110. I'm weaving together for you this morning the kind of texts that characterized apostolic preaching. If you read the book of Acts, you will see that what I'm doing this morning is no different from the very first kind of preaching that Christian people ever heard after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Psalm 110. This is David speaking, and he says that the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, says to my Lord, that is the ultimate Messiah, Sit at my right hand. Notice those terms. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is his enthronement. This is the enthronement of the Son of Man, the Messiah, that we saw back in Daniel 7. And now here we see again, sit at the Father's right hand on the throne of heaven until all of his enemies are his footstool. The Lord, verse 2, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. But then again, verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. The day when you come into your authority. Those people will come freely. All of the rest you will break with your rod of iron rule. And now, here on the mountain in Galilee, this resurrected Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, is about to enter into that rightful glory. I mean, he is days away from his ascension and his enthronement at the right hand of God, and he declares that all authority over heaven and on earth is given to him. And in a very short time, the apostles would preach that very message. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2. And look at verse 29. Acts 2.29. After quoting from David in the Psalms, Peter stands and says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. 
In fact, his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, David as the prophet, knowing that God had sworn, and knowing that God had sworn to him an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw by this prophetic vision and according to this promise, he foresaw and he spoke about what? David spoke about Christ and particularly about the resurrection of the Messiah that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. We who saw him on the mountain, we who walked with him by the shore, we are the witnesses. Verse 33, And being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and now he's quoting Psalm 10 that we just read, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And now Peter says this, Let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In raising Christ from the dead and exalting Him to His own right hand at His throne in heaven, God is vindicating and rewarding the work of Jesus Christ and putting all things under His feet, giving Him authority over all things in heaven and on earth. This is His right and His reward because He alone of all humankind obeyed the Father, exercised His dominion exactly under the authority of God Almighty. And you see this in Philippians chapter 2 as well. Philippians chapter 2. There He says, beginning in verse number 6, I know you're familiar with this text, that though He, that is Christ, though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming, notice what He does, He becomes obedient to God even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of His perfect obedience, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is what Jesus is saying, right? All authority in all of heaven and earth Every knee should bow, verse 11, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 20. Ephesians 1. Toward the end of the verse, it says this, that God raised Him, that is, raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. In other words, Christ is exalted and given a place above all heavenly powers, above all of the powers of the spirit realm. And he is given a name above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And then verse 22, and he has put all things under his feet. Again, echoing Psalm 8. The writer of Hebrews quotes this same passage. If you go one last text here, I believe, one or two more texts in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, the writer quotes that very same passage from Psalm 8, and then he says this. Now notice this, this is very helpful for us in in Hebrews 2.8. Now, in putting everything in subjection under him, or in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Isn't that what Jesus is claiming? All authority. I mean, talking about all of the powers of the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, the spirits, the angels, all of the powers of earth, the mightiest kings, all of the people on the earth, even the, even the underworld. He's Lord of it all. He says this, He left nothing outside His control, but, verse 8, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. Isn't that true? Even now, isn't that true? The world does not see visibly the kingship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. I tell you, when the world sees that, all of the world will fall on their knees. One day it will be a manifest, it will be apparent. But right now, he's saying, it is not. There is evil in the world. Evil men still are on the throne. Satan is still having his day, as it were. Death is still reigning, in a sense, even while Christ is ruling. Now, he is ruling. He makes that clear, right? He is ruling. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And because he is ruling, we can say this, that the most evil intentions of men are being overruled by the Son of God for the good of his people. Amen? And because he is on the throne, even Satan himself is a tool in the Master's hand to accomplish his purpose. Even death that touches you and your family and causes so much pain, even death for a Christian is a hollow enemy without any real sting to it. But his reign is not yet made fully manifest. It's not fully visible. It's not obvious to all. But here's what we do see. Verse 9. We don't see His reign made manifest yet, but we do see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. This is again the echoes of the Psalms. Namely Jesus, we see the... Now we know what Psalm 8 was really talking about, right? That that God has put all things under the feet of man. All men are pointing forward to the one man. He's put all things under His feet He's made, um, or God has made him, namely Jesus, for a little while lower than the angels, but we see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. We see him crowned with glory and honor. They saw him. 
they literally saw him ascend up into heaven. They saw his feet leave the ground. The feet of his resurrection body lifted up off the ground and began to go up and up and up, and he was surrounded by clouds. And where did he go? Well, these guys believed the, the, the Old Testament, and they believed Daniel. And they believe Daniel's vision in 7, which says that he rides on the clouds of heaven into the throne room of God, and there he is presented with his kingship over all of heaven and earth, and all authority in heaven and earth is given to him. This is not his authority inherent as deity. This is his authority that is unique as the obedient, resurrected, glorified Son of Man. Authority over all of God's creation to the very end of the created world. We see him ascend up into heaven. Now, he was obscured from their sight, right? And this is where it becomes, this is where you have to say the seeing in verse 9 is not a seeing with physical eyes anymore. I mean, once those clouds come and obscure him from their sight, now they're seeing with different eyes. Now they're seeing with eyes of faith. Now they're seeing through eyes of revelation. Scriptural revelation. They see Him seated at the God's right hand, ruling and reigning over all that is. And for their encouragement, He gives them signs. Signs of His heavenly enthronement. He's talked about these throughout the book. We've talked about them before, right? For example, we saw back in chapter 24, verse 30, Jesus telling them that, quote, the sign of the Son of Man in heaven will appear. I'll give you a sign that the Son of Man is in heaven, that He's seated on His throne, that He's been presented to the heavenly Father, to the Ancient of Days, and has received all of the universe as His rightful inheritance. I'll give you a sign, Jesus says. And though His enthronement as the universal authority over heaven and earth is invisible to human eyes, yet they would see it. They would see it as they watch the Israelite cities reject, hear and reject the gospel. They would see it as they saw the Holy Spirit now begin to come upon all flesh, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, young and old, and ultimately when they saw Jesus' prediction come true that that old Jerusalem, that that old shadowy temple would be done away with and be destroyed. Within your generation, Jesus says, this will happen. And this will be a sign. Now the new temple has come. A temple not made with hands. That which is uh, made will be shaken so that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This will be the sign. And when they saw that, they saw. They saw with eyes of faith through the Scriptures, through the confirmation of the Lord Jesus, through these signs, they saw this is true. What He said to us on that mountain is absolutely true. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to Him. And I want to encourage you with this with all of these things that you too would believe, that you would see that this is true. Because a lot of people don't see it. A lot of people don't believe it. 
Christ is seated on His throne with authority over all things in heaven and on earth. And Jesus said at His trial, from now on, you will see this. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. 2664. And one day, oh, this is the last passage. One day, Christ's kingly reign will be visible for all to see. It will come to its consummation. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, the last text, says it this way, beginning in verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Christ has been raised from the dead. Notice how every one of these texts almost is tied to the resurrection, the glorification. The glorification of Jesus is involved, is composed of these things. His resurrection, His ascension, His enthronement, His session, His, his seat, being seated, which is the enthronement, and His manifestation, or we say His return. This is His glory. This is what he was born into the world for. This is what the whole decree of God from all eternity was all about, making much of his son and thereby saving a lost and sinful people. But we read in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in order, in his own order, Christ first, he's the first fruits of this new resurrection reality, this new creation. He's the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, and verse 24, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. How do we know that? Because the Scripture tells us, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. And if you want to know when that is, He says in verse 26, the last enemy to be ultimately, visibly, fully, completely destroyed is death itself. And that's the way the Bible ends, isn't it? One day, death shall be no more. The death that came into the world through the first man will be utterly eliminated by the second. Not only right now in terms of its, of its real consequences, but in terms of its presence at all, in terms of its touch upon us at all, it will be destroyed as we are raised with Christ in eternal, glorified, resurrected life in transformed bodies that are somehow our self-same bodies and yet made new, just like Christ's resurrection body. But all those who refuse Him, who resist His rule, Remember, Matthew's Gospel is all about the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. You see it so keenly in the way he ends it. But those who resist that rule will not be successful. And his reign of iron 
will break them like someone smashes a clay pot. And I admonish you that you would flee from the wrath of the king when he is made manifest by humbling yourself before him and repenting of your rebellion against him. And I'll tell you this, if you will do so, you will find him a gracious Lord. There is no king on earth so abused and yet so forgiving to those who humble themselves before him and beg for mercy. He is a king beyond all kings and a Lord beyond all lords. Kiss the Son. Yield to Him. Trust Him. He did rise from the dead. That tomb was empty. And that means He does have authority over heaven and earth. And one day you and I and everything in all of creation will have to answer to that authority. I hope you will be ready. I hope in that day it will not be ultimately a day of terror for you, but it will be a day of joy when your king is finally, visibly, openly, indisputably vindicated for all the world to see. Amen and amen. Heavenly Father, thank You for this Word today, and I pray that You would strengthen our hearts by it. Lord, we have... We have looked at many texts and I pray now that the strength of those words would not be lost on us for their, uh, for their multiplication, but that they would have their intended effect in our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.